0: I don't know, that just sounds like some liberal gay shit. Whatever, you don't have to include that. I'm Phoenix Danger. Uh, I am your host. And I have no formal degree from an academic institution uh, that says that I can formally teach this to you, but fuck but fuck every institution. This is a podcast and we are just going to talk about queer theory. Um we're going to we're going to excavate some feelings. We're going to talk about a little bit of history. Um and we as always are going to sort of be asking how we got to this particular moment in queer history or queer present, whatever works best for you, wherever you're located in time, um, I support you. If you were here for our last episode, uh, we talked about neoliberalism. I decided that we're going to do that again. We're going to do it some more because neoliberalism is such like a, a slippery, slippery little, slippery little rat, whatever. I wanted to like bring... Or like because it's the kind of thing that sort of almost eludes a definition. Um, I wanted to sort of like give you a few more examples, like talk about it a little bit more. Um, and maybe sort of like we all can get a better uh or rather an even better grasp over it. So today we are gonna be talking about Lisa Dugan is how everyone else pronounces it. I pronounce it Duggan, but I guess I'm I guess I'm just a rube or a plebe or whatever, Um, but I won't be pronouncing it Duggan because I, I believe that's correct. Before I really get into that, I guess I want to talk a little bit more about why I think an understanding of neoliberalism is important, or like one of the reasons for that is because to have an understanding of how we've gotten into this place of politics where there's like a huge, you know, like there's a huge rift between... I, what I would still call gay and lesbian politics um, and queer politics um, in which the former is more concerned with mm, the maintaining of a status quo and the joining of a status quo, um, a.k.a. like sort of like rights-based framework um, kind of stuff where sort of like the politic is more about assimilation and inclusion um, and where sort of like the radical queer politic is more concerned about dismant- uh dismantling dismantling institutions um and sort of like coming at things from a more uh sort of like intersectional uh, a more intersectional angle so I don't know I guess like this is incredibly important to me um if you have listened to previous episodes and if you haven't, you should go do that after this. But if you listen to previous episodes, um, you maybe know that I, um, I started to come out when I was about 16. It was like, I don't know, whatever, of course, like it was an extremely painful process. And also, even though I didn't realize it at the time, I feel like it was really, um, like sort of like suffering because of (laughs) suffering because of my queerness really sort of Began to shape my political identity, um, my identity as someone who is other, um, someone sort of like who, and someone who uh, is targeted for that otherness. Yeah, and so as I kind of grew into my queerness, inevitably through more suffering i had begun to feel like and still feel this like this fear around the sort of like increasing prevalence of assimilationist politics because i think that my my central question around all this shit is um if queerness um or at least certain types of queerness Become the status quo um, if we can if we get to the point where sort of uh, neoliberal goals like marriage or uh, military service, if inclusion in straight society is something that is guaranteed for young queer people um, that queer like young queer people will no longer feel a need to become politicized. Um, We'll no longer see sort of like heterosexual, racist, like classist institutions as places where they belong um, to see like heterosexuality um, or at least like heterosexual structures as something that we should sort of like seek and have inclusion in um that like there will be no more like radical queerness basically um and that like we will have lost what's sort of like beautifully different about us which i i think is our survival um and of course of course we do we do lose a lot of people mm, to various types of violence and many of us including me and you, are surviving that violence, you know, we're surviving that violence uh, with each other, with our own networks of support, um, with our own networks of healing, with our own networks of um, sort of like redistributing wealth. Mm, And I worry that we might lose that survival-driven, that survival Driven and, like, that community-driven aspect of our identities that I think is a big part of what makes us who we are. Like, you know, I think that that makes us people who have visions of what another world can be like and that we strive to enact these small pleasures and these acts of care um, in order to work towards... Work towards that world, which hopefully many of us will <clears throat> will love to see. But I don't know. I think I think the kids are all right. I think the kids are all right. I think they're. I think that there's like as much as much as like assimilation and inclusion is sort of like made to be uh, very appealing right now. I think that a lot of young people are really seeing that shit is fucked up. And so I think they're doing all right. The bad news is that they're suffering. Um, but the good news is that they're resisting. Um, and that's, that's really fucking cool. So shout out to the youth. Maybe you're listening. That would be cool. I would be honored. All right. Let's fucking, let's talk about Lisa Dugan. So Lisa Dugan is an NYU professor Um, She has been in the queer theory game since about 1995. Um, She is super, uh, she's super, she's super invested in cultural studies and sort of like the cultural part of, of queerness, um, which like I think is connected to sort of like what, what I spoke about, about like suffering and the survival of suffering uh, within, within queerness all right, so let's start with an idea of Dugan's that I think is really interesting, um, which is the idea of corporate activism uh, and the the uniting of the political and cultural right. What she's saying here is is that when we think about organizing for social change, we I, or I at least I think about leftist organizing. You know, um, but what what I think that I forget. Is that the right is incredibly organized as well. And that I mean, I guess we're seeing that much more than we were like, I don't know, like a year ago before before we were like fighting Nazis in the street. So what I'm what I'm saying is that the right is particularly organized. And they're organized in a neoliberal fashion, which means um which means a couple of things. So the the organized right is headed, I would say Literally by corporations and corporate interests, and so what that means is that um, the goal one of one of the many goals of neoliberalism um, is to extend uh, extend like sort of like the the upward flow of resources resources like capital like money or like property or like um, like policy. And so that, uh, all of that is aimed to increase wealth for the wealthy and on the other side, sort of like a race, a race to the bottom of, uh, how much people who are not wealthy and who like, who rely on welfare, food stamps, et cetera. Um, how much, how much corporations and moneyed people can take away from them, you know, big wealth gap, increasing wealth gap. So that, right. So that's the goal that they're organized around. Another thing, another thing is that they have, I mean, like whatever, like conservatives have no morals, right? Like they, I mean, they have like quote unquote, like morals, like something, (laughs) I don't know, like something probably about like God or whatever. Um, but, like, you know, the reality is that they just, like, don't give a shit if poor people die, right? They don't care – they don't, like, give a shit if uh, if black people die. They don't give a shit if um, – I don't know, man. They, just, they don't give a shit. Um, and so what that means is that they can shift alliances over time or they can incorporate uh, – yeah, they can shift alliances over time or they can sort of, like, absorb – ideas or demographics like into their moral structure. And so basically like what I'm saying is that because conservative alliances are always changing shape, different people or different groups at different times can be a part of the sort of like destructive per- pervasive moral agenda. And so it's like who's a who's a conservative this day? Like who's involved with conservatives is it um is it uh is it the catholic church is it presbyterians is it nazis the nra is it gay people is it gay people is it china you know like and so sort of like these and many other demographics are shifted around and um included sort of in the conservative agenda when it is convenient and conducive to, uh, to business interests. Um, I think something that's important to understand is that neoliberalism, despite having the word liberal in it, sort of like traverses the American political spectrum, which like, honestly is like barely a spectrum at all. I guess it's more of a binary, right? Right. Okay. So like the American political system is a binary, uh, Democrats, Republicans, um, they actually both fall under the, under the label of neoliberalism. I think that Dugan, for me, gave a really helpful quote about this, which is where she says if Ronald Reagan was a conservative president with substantial support from the religious right and Bill Clinton was a liberal president exorciated by conservatives and the right, then why do their policy initiatives look so much alike? Great question. It was Bill Clinton who pushed the North American Free Trade Agreement through against organized labor's opposition and who presided over, quote, the end of welfare as we know it. The continuities from Reagan through Bush 1, Clinton to Bush 2, a.k.a. the continuities of neoliberal policy promotion, are rendered relatively invisible by the dominant political system and language. Mm. Conflicts between conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats have been shaped largely within the terms of neoliberalism, even as neoliberal and even anti-liberal forces have been engaged or appropriated through alliance politics as well. So yeah, I think that this is a good reminder because um, I, I always, I guess this joke is getting old, but I always joke that Bill Clinton was actually the first radical queer president Um, because he didn't want gay people to get married or join the military, just like we don't, um, obviously Bill Clinton is not a a radical queer, That, that is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, don't tweet it, don't tweet that I said that, It's not what I meant, um, but interestingly, um, I just thought that that was like an interesting, um, accidental sharing of goals, though obviously coming from really different places, okay, all right. So, let's talk. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about marriage. It's almost uh Thanksgiving is coming up. So, oh yeah, so Thanksgiving is coming up and I guess uh because that holiday still exists. And you know, and like I feel like since I feel like since queer people, gay people have like won the right to marry now if you're in touch with your family and you go to Thanksgiving, you too, your gay ass, can now be asked by all your aunties, when are you getting married? When are you getting married? You can choose how to answer that whatever however you want. Maybe you can call them neoliberal. That would be cool. Pull that yeah, pull out the word neoliberalism at Thanksgiving dinner. See how that goes. Let me know. That you can tweet at me. So here's here's something that I thought was interesting. Um so even though I think that I think that gay I think that gay marriage, same sex marriage same gender marriage i think that we think of that as an idea of like the or i do i don't know i think that i i think i had always thought about gay marriage as an issue of sort of like the 2010s uh but it turns out we've been talking about this shit for much longer than that uh so i'm gonna take you to 1971 these two gay men richard baker and Michael McConnell, they are, um, they're a young gay couple, they're students, um, and the story, the story goes that, um, that Richard Baker was like, hey, Mike McConnell, will you move in with me, and Michael McConnell goes, yes, but only if you find a way for us to get married, Richard Baker goes to law school to figure this out because he's like, yeah, I'm really going to fucking do it. Let's fucking do it. Like, let's, you know, let's be a a married domestic couple. Yeah. So what ends up happening is they go down to City Hall to get a marriage license. The clerk who they file for this with um, obviously says no. Of course, this wasn't just um, right. And they were and they were expecting him to say no. Of course, this isn't just a, you know, oh, oh, we just wanted to get married. We didn't know gay people couldn't get married. Like, you you fucking knew that gay people couldn't get married. Like, I think from my perspective, it looks like um, they, they wanted to be the case, you know, like the case that won gay marriage. Um, so <laughs> they sued the clerk. Um, they sued the clerk, and this makes it almost to the Supreme Court. And uh, the Supreme Court, like, just completely doesn't give a shit. Not only did they refuse to look at it, they, like, literally only sent one sentence um, in which they dismissed the appeal, quote, for want of a substantial federal question. Basically, this is a non-issue. And so I I think that this is the beginning of queer slash, like, gay and lesbian movements, um moving to the right because now now that the state is saying no you can't get married um this gives this gives uh this gives an opportunity for an incredibly reactionary um mode of thinking which is well now that the state now that we have proof that the state doesn't want this now we have something to rally around and this this is the 70s again let me take a second to say why this is such a neoliberal thing. Um, and that is because gay people getting married is not is not on the queer liberation agenda. Yeah, it is on it is on the agenda of queer or gay people who th- who think and feel that getting married is what is going to humanize gay people to straight people. So they're basically like well, if we get married just like straight people, like, they'll understand us better and they'll see our humanity, they will stop committing violence towards us. And basically, like, what they're saying, like, what this is saying is that, like, being gay is about the approval of straight people. And, like, 1,000% fuck that. It's not about pleasing or impressing straight people who, like, continue to commit and support um violence towards queer people it's just like in the case of queer liberation straight people are not what matters okay and so what what we're seeing because of this is that um neoliberal reactionary politics like reactionary like let me actually let me define let me try to see if i can get a definition of reactionary for you um because i think it's a thing that leftists say a lot and um No one ever really explains it. You just kind of like have to use your context clues. Um, And so give me one second while I Google this. Thank you. Thank you to the dictionary, which defined reactionary as a reactionary person. All right, one second. I'm going to fucking tweet at the Merriam-Webster dictionary about this. Okay, so a reactionary is a person who holds political views that favor a return to the status quo. Interestingly, this is uh this is universally considered a conservative point of view. And so what that means is that um because this action um of Baker versus Nelson is directed at the state, it actually evidences that the state's rejection of gay marriage pushes the gay agenda to the right. It moves this it moves the political center to the right, which then moves gay movements, like it forces gay movements to, or it doesn't, I think a better word is coerces. It coerces gay movements into fighting essentially conservative battles with like like gay conservative status quo politics. Now that we're oriented with gay movements that lean to the right, let's kind of quickly go through some history that brought us here, which I, okay, whatever. That's what we've been doing. But anyway, history is really important. Know your queer history. um, Or else you will forget who you are basically. So Baker versus Nelson is in the takes place in the 1970s. Um, In the 1980s, there is the AIDS epidemic takes off and Sort of like two, I would say, I mean, like a lot of political branches came out of, um, out of, uh, out of AIDS activism. And, and one was sort of the, um, the more radical factions of queers. So like, AKA, like Act Up, uh, Sex Panic, which was, so yeah. So one branch is sort of like more radical queers who, um, who basically like don't even consider marriage. Yeah, who don't even consider marriage as part of a goal. You know, obviously people were seeing their friends and partners dying and not being able to have the kind of access to um to sort of like their care. They don't have access to their care and like their care is not being prioritized. And so what what their reaction to this is that um is that we need universal health care because people are dying. And the more conservative faction, their solution is, well, we need to get married because you can't, you can't access these rights until we're married, so we're going to get married. And so you can kind of see like where on like, the spectrum of neoliberalism all of this falls because what the leftists are saying is that we should have a system of health care that is accessible to everyone and that everyone deserves and needs that, and because they need it, should have it. The The neoliberal faction is saying, well, we just need to be treated like straight people. And obviously, like, this is terrifying, because, because what if you're single, you know? Like, what if you're, like, a single queer person, and you have, if you're, like, a single gay man, and you have AIDS, and you're, like, in the, ho- or, uh, yeah, and you're in the hospital, and you don't have, even if you, even if we were, like, here today... What that is saying is um, if you – okay, so here's how it goes. So the conservative or neoliberal faction is saying that we need to get married to access these rights. And that comes from the idea that you, you only deserve access to life-saving amenities if you are building a family, uh, and that is because the family is sort of, like, the most base um, economic – or, like, is – yeah, is, like, the most base economic institution. Um, and sort of, like, capitalism is built uh, off of, like, various systems. And, like, the family um, is sort of the most the most basic one um, because it's, like, a self-sustained – because the family is basically, like, almost a self-sustained economy in which – Parents raise well. First of all, in which everyone is monogamous, very important to the state. And within this monogamous relationship, you're also, um, like, if you're having children, you're also producing more workers. And so, from from the AIDS epidemic comes right. So comes an idea that monogamy is important. To the conservatives, the idea that monogamy is important and necessary um, to gain the respect and approval of basically like heterosexual policymakers. Of course, because people who assimilate are granted the privilege of more power and also, also I think... More access to financial resources. Um, this is the narrative that continues. The nar- it's the narrative that continues, and so in the nineties, uh, in the nineties, we got Bill Clinton. And Bill- actually, let me just look this up to make sure it's true. So in the nineties, Bill Clinton signs both the Don't Ask, Don't Tell military policy and the Defense of Marriage Act. And the Defense of Marriage Act basically um, defines marriage as one man, one woman. And so, again, now not only do we have the Defense of Marriage Act, but we also have "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," which again shifts uh, shifts the the battleground to the right um, because now suddenly, like now suddenly, instead of talking about queer liberation and like universal health care, sort of like alternative alternative economies, um, we're now somehow fighting to be the foot soldiers of a violent state that does not actually value queer lives. I mean, and so in short, that is how we got here, not just through um, the neoliberal agenda of corporations and corporate interests and wealth accumulation um, by straight people, but in fact also, um, also complicit in this um are gay people who value assimilation over anything for you know um for queer people, for trans people, um for people of color, working class people, working poor, um disabled people and of course intersections of all those identities the the focus, the mainstream focus, is no longer on those bodies because those bodies are disposable within a capitalist economy. Um, Now what we are focused, or now what, like, the mainstream focus is, is assimilation. And let me tell you that ignoring marginalized queer people can lead to violence and death. Um as we've basically seen in every reading uh, that we've done on this show. Um, but also that I, I think that assimilation is another type of death um, and one that's not just individual, um, but one that as we can see drags a queer or a supposedly queer agenda far to the right Um and so it's, like, not just damaging on an individual level. It is also, like, on a systemic level. Um, and so what I'm saying is keep each other alive. Mm. Yeah. So this is a poem by Frank O'Hara. Um, it's called Ave Maria. Mothers of America, let your kids go to the movies. Get them out of the house so they won't know what you're up to. It's true that fresh air is good for the body, But what about the soul that grows in darkness, embossed by silvery images? And when you grow old, as grow old you must. They won't hate you. They won't criticize you. They won't know. They'll be in some glamorous country they first saw on a Saturday afternoon or playing hooky. They may even be grateful to you for their first sexual experience, which only cost you a quarter and didn't upset the peaceful home. They will know where candy bars come from and gratuitous bags of popcorn, as gratuitous as leaving the movie before it's over, with a pleasant stranger whose apartment is the Heaven-on-Earth building near the Williamsburg Bridge. Oh, mothers, you will have made the little tykes so happy, because if no one does pick them up in the movies, they won't know the difference, and if somebody does, it'll be sheer gravy." And they'll have been truly entertained either way, instead of hanging around the yard or up in their room, hating you prematurely, since you won't have done anything horribly mean yet, except keeping them from the darker joys. It's unforgivable, the latter, so don't blame me if you won't take this advice, and the family breaks up, and your children go old and blind in front of a TV set, seeing movies you wouldn't let them see when they were young.